the Lord Vader's shuttle has arrived. Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G, I'll be here to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down. I tell you, this station will be operational as planned. Well, the man don't think so, and he be cruising down here to check out this ride. The Empress coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN. You're listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, manures, tumors, and video games. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Charles Towns, who will discuss the relationship between science and religion. Also, we'll find out what the valence shell is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Rocks, I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? I'm in the hall in the manure state. Is it the manure of science? Are you dredging up the dreck that is the bottom rung of science? Indeed I am, actually. So how do you handle your manure? <laughs> With three-inch thick gloves. <laughs> leaded. <laughs> yeah, and a heat shield, I think. <laughs> so it turns out there is a whole entire science dedicated to the handling of manure. And tomorrow, July 27th, in Fallon, Michigan, they have the Great Lakes Manure Handling Expo. <laughs> I hope they hand out no plugs at the entrance. Actually, this is a free event, and there's food concessions available on site, according to the brochure. Hopefully hands-on activities right beforehand. <laughs> of course, and these include manure handling, innovative methods for dealing with sand bedding, and other technologies for accuracy and record keeping. Also, uh, odor control, all the new technologies for reducing those smells. A couple more not-so-smelly things, nutrition management and economics. <laughs> okay. It's not surprising given how important it is as a fertilizer. Feeds us, man. I mean, well, not directly. But do they have any other uses besides that? Are they trying to expand the realms of possibilities of manure? I guess they're trying to be more environmentally friendly these days to protect runoffs and stuff like that. Oh, well, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, you hear uh, nasty stories about pig manure overflowing. <laughs> it's the corporation, man. So if anyone's interested, I just head over to Fowler, Michigan and check it out. I'm not sure if it's possible, but can manure give you cancer? 
I guess if there's toxins in them. Maybe if they're embedded with radio towers in them. Cell phone towers that might emit a large amount of radiation. I don't know too many animals that eat cell phone towers and then it and comes process the them. Well, maybe one day they'll start building cell towers on the top of manure farms. But I've seen quite a lot of cell towers along Highway 5 these days. And yeah, there's pretty good coverage along Highway 5. Yeah. There's no coverage in my house, but along Highway 5, I'm fine. <laughs> Can you hear me? It's interesting, actually. There's a brain tumor cluster that struck Melbourne University, and they've emptied all of the top floors of the university because of this particular incident. There are apparently seven cases of people developing brain tumors, all of whom worked on the top floor, which is right beneath cell phone towers. There must be a correlation there. They suspect that it's just maybe a chance clustering of brain tumors. There doesn't really appear to be any clear link right now. They're looking at the evidence. Preliminary tests don't seem to show cause for alarm, mainly because if you look at the types of tumors that are found, they all have somewhat different types in these different people. Okay. So it might just be a strange genetic predisposition in these folks uh-huh. or some other related factor, but the types of tumors do not seem to be related to radiation. I mean, I thought there were, like, statistical analysis you can use to prove if these occurrences are correlated or not. But again, this is probably a small sampling such that uh, statistical right. power might be limited. Probably not any reason to be concerned about the cell phone tower you're working under, but gives one pause. Right. And so this was a report that was released by the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. So, Charles, do you play video games before you go into surgery? I think about video games usually during surgery, which is fun. Not for the patient, though. <laughs> so it turns out doctors who uh, play video games regularly actually perform better in their surgeries. Hand-eye coordination. There's a study that just came out of the uh, Beth Israel Medical Center in New York, and it showed that doctors who played three hours on average of video games tended to make 37% fewer mistakes during their uh, laparoscopies. I guess the recommendation is start playing video games. <laughs> Grand Theft Auto, man. I like the ones where you just chop everyone up and wipe out half of Europe. I think we have some issues that we need to deal with here. <laughs> Perhaps best not over the air, but <laughs> fascinating work, I guess. <laughs> that was a very nice article in Associated Press. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Rick Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Nobel laureate Charles Towns joins us to talk about science and religion, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, religion and science both aim to seek the truth. While one tries to find the nature of the existence of the universe, 
the other tries to explain its reason for existence, the why. While there may seem to be a conflict between the two, often they seek the same goals. And joining us to discuss the dichotomy or similarities between the two is Professor Charles Towns here from UC Berkeley. Uh, Professor Towns, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm pleased to be here. So last year you received the Templeton Prize for your work in promoting this discussion between science and religion. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the work that led up to this prize? Yes, well I got into this somewhat accidentally I must say. I was a member of the Riverside Church in New York and uh, the men's class there knew that I was a scientist and they didn't know many scientists were coming to church so they asked me would I talk about my view of, of religion. So I did and uh, the editor of Think Magazine was present and then he asked could he publish it. So he published it and then a lot of other people wanted to publish it and then a lot of other people wanted me to talk about it and so on and so that was many years ago and I got as I say somewhat accidentally uh, into it but I'm very interested and uh, it's partly for all these talks and lectures and uh, writings that I was given the Templeton Prize. I was uh, primarily discussing what I call the convergence between science and religion. I think science and religion are much more similar than most people recognize and in the long run if we understand them both well enough they will converge. Let me just summarize what this prize is about here. In its mission statement, it seeks to recognize those that exemplify trying to find various ways of discovering and having breakthroughs to expand human perceptions of divinity and to help in the acceleration of divine creativity. What does that exactly mean to you? Well, I'm not sure how much I've really contributed, but uh, I have certainly uh, increased the discussion and I hope the understanding of the relation between science and religion. And it's for that reason that I was given the prize. When you first began to voice your uh, views on science and religion, certainly you must have faced some opposition. How were you able to uh, continue discussion and perhaps uh, convey your views to the general audience? Uh, yes, some of my friends objected uh, and uh, thought I was crazy to be discussing this and so on. However, in the long run, they became pretty much convinced that, well, yes, one must discuss these things in an open-minded way. I primarily want to discuss in an open-minded way, and that discussion is increasing, I believe, partly, in th partly thanks to the Templeton Foundation, which is trying to encourage the open-minded discussion of uh, the meaning of religion and, and its significance and what it is. And for you personally, what exactly uh, is this truth that we seek? Is truth something that is intuitive and found by introspection, or is it found through uh, knowledge from uh, evidence? Well, I would say both. And I think this is something many people don't recognize, that we understand science and we understand religion using all of our human facilities, all of our human abilities, and in a very parallel way, actually. We generally think, for example, that religion requires faith. We have faith in something, and then uh, we, we uh, act on that. Uh, science requires faith, too. We call them postulates. We make postulates. We make suppositions of postulates, and then we use logic and deduce things from that and decide how the world is behaving. And in fact, there's a famous mathematician, Gödel, who uh, showed that, yes, you make postulates, then you use logic and mathematics to make conclusions from them, but you can never prove that the postulates are even self-consistent. So you can never prove that you're right in science. You have intuitions, and uh, you can do experiments. Now, in religion, there are, of course, intuitions, as well as postulates of faith, but there are also experiments. Now, <laughs> what I mean by that? Well, they differ somewhat from what we think of as the physical sciences, at least. 
But think of the social sciences. Social sciences, we observe how people behave and how they interact and so on. Religion is very similar. We observe how we feel and how people interact and what makes a good life and what makes a good society and so on. Those are observations, which are basically experiments. Uh, now, you can also experiment and make measurements. For example, uh, there have been some studies on the effect of prayer on the healing of people and some quantitative studies on that. So there are many ways in which we can use our observations or experiments in religion, think about it, use our intu intuition, use all of our abilities to try to understand really what is the meaning and purpose of this universe and of our lives and what makes a good life. Speaking of prayer and healing, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the recent study that came out which tried to correlate prayer with a, um, a controlled group of heart patients. And the recent study showed that there was not really a correlation. In fact, the group that received the prayer had uh, fared slightly worse than the control group. Do you feel these experiments are perhaps uh, biased in some uh, unfortunate way, or do you feel that it warrants further study? I think those studies are interesting. I think they're somewhat uncertain because statistics are not uh, good enough to make a very clear case. Now, there was an earlier study of the effect of prayer on healing where people knew that they were being prayed for, and that study showed that, in fact, yes, they, they did get better as a result of prayer. Uh, this most recent study has made a case where some people knew they were being prayed for, some people didn't, and they tried to examine to see whether it was just a psychological effect or not. And uh, th that experiment uh, turned out negatively, but that was specifically on heart. And uh, the, the first one was on a rather broader range of, uh, of uh, diseases. So I would say the results are still not very certain. So I understand that you regard yourself as an open-minded uh, Protestant Christian. Um, what does this mean to you? Does the Bible contain universal or absolute truths? And should we take it literally or metaphorically? Well, I certainly don't take all of the Bible literally. Uh, but it's uh, metaphorically. For example, uh, the Bible says that the earth was created in seven days or six days, and, uh, well, actually the Hebrew words for days was just a period of time, and uh, we now know the universe was created about 13.7 billion years ago, and the Hebrews at that time probably had no, no way of imagining that long a time. So they had to be metaphorical. But I think the Bible also gives us many, many very important truths. It's a result of a lot of deep thinking and inspiration and care over the past, and uh, we can learn much from it. Well, so you've certainly inspired many scientists and thinkers throughout your life. Um, looking back, who or what have been your inspirations? Well, of course, my, my parents were very important to me and my wife and my children and so on, but also this great universe. This universe is really remarkable, and life itself is remarkable. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, it seems so improbable that things would occur this way, so that uh, seems a, there has to be somehow a plan, intelligence, uh, and uh, meaning to this universe. So if we study science enough, I think we can begin to see things related to religion. For example, the creation of the universe. How did it get created? It started. Well, how can something start just from almost nothing? Well, that's a puzzle. And if you want to say God created, well, then what created God? So it's always a puzzle. But nevertheless, the universe uh, shows us, yes, there was a beginning. Now, many scientists thought, oh, of course, the universe couldn't have a beginning. That's impossible. It's always be here. Einstein felt that very strongly. 
But now we know this experimental fact that yes, the universe had to start from a tiny, tiny little thing about 14 billion years ago. And there are many things like this that we understand from science that are beginning to suggest things about religion. So you're best known for your, your work that led up to the Maser and subsequent to Laser, in which you uh, won your Nobel Prize in. But is there anything that you're most proud of? Well, I think from a scientific point of view, th that's the thing I'm most proud of. And I might say also that that came about as a somehow I would call it a revelation. You know, I had been working on trying to understand how to amplify short waves. I'd been working for several years on that. I'd tried various things. I was chairman of a committee to try to f examine internationally. Anybody have any ideas? And we hadn't gotten anywhere. And I woke up early in the morning at the last meeting of the committee worrying about it, and I went out and sat on a park bench. Why hadn't I been able to get a good idea? And I thought out over the idea, and, hey, wait a minute. Oh, I see. Oh, this is the way to do it. <laughs> it was a real revelation. <laughs> now, I think many of our discoveries come about the same way, including religious revelation. People think and think about the problem, and then suddenly they have a realization. Are there any recent developments in physics or astronomy that bring insight into how we should define our purpose in the universe? Well, I would say in science, one might find some things. For example, why are we here? The purpose of the universe with evolution and so on, evolution gradually developed us. And here we are, and now we can do all kinds of things, changing our universe and so on. So is that what the universe is all about? Develop us and give us a new freedom and so on and all of this? And I think, well, that's, that seems reasonable. At the same time, are there any uh, mysteries that you feel content without being solved? Oh, there are many, many mysteries, and I think many people don't recognize how many mysteries there are in science. And inconsistencies, for example, quantum mechanics and general relativity are inconsistent. They both work very well, and we believe them, but they're inconsistent. In addition, we don't know how in the world we can possibly have free will. We think we can make free choices. We think I can put my hand to the left, I can put my hand to the right, of course. But no, science doesn't allow that. We don't have any free choice. We're not predictable completely, according to quantum mechanics. We're not predictable, but there's nothing that can have any choice. Well, nobody believes they, uh, they can't make some choices. And so that's an, that's an inconsistency. And there, there are many others. For example, we find that most of the universe that's here, we don't know what it is. The material we see, atoms and molecules and so on, the material we see is only about 5% of the total mass of the universe. That's just recently been discovered. There's a lot of dark matter out there. We don't know what in the world it is. Most of the universe, we don't know what in the world it is. So there are many, many interesting puzzles. Many scientists subscribe to some form of secular humanism. Do you feel a set of beliefs that does not necessarily include a um, godlike entity is consistent or sufficient to explain the nature of the universe? Well, as I mentioned, there are many inconsistencies in our present understanding. Uh, and how in the world could we be here? And, and how can we possibly have free will and so on? So I would say there must be other things we don't understand. And uh, we must try our best to figure out what is most likely the case. My own belief is a, um, a creation uh, and religious view uh, and a purpose in this universe is the best answer. But other people can make other conclusions. And I don't agree with them, and I don't think they're the best conclusions. But nevertheless, we can't prove for sure any of these things. We have to make our best estimates, think hard, observe carefully, think hard, use our best logic and make their best estimate of what really is likely to be the case.
what are your thoughts on intelligent design? Is this a misguided debate? Clearly, it is a theory, but should it be classified as a science or should it be considered a philosophy or religion? Well, I think intelligent design has been very much misused by some of the fundamentalist religious people. Actually, if you look at our universe and the constants of physics, happened to turn out just the right way and so we could be here. If the laws of physics was changed just a little bit, we couldn't be here. And the sun wouldn't be there to give us this energy for all billions of years and so on. So it's a fantastic that we're here at all. And for that reason, many scientists said, well, somehow it must have been intelligently planned. And this is where the idea of intelligent design comes from now. The point about intelligent design is it does not disprove evolution, which is what the fundamentalist religious people want to say. It doesn't disprove evolution at all. Evolution is part of the design. That's part of the intelligent design that we could evolve, you see. So evolution and intelligent design are perfectly consistent. And I think there is certainly some evidence of somehow there must have been an intelligence that planned this universe. When Darwin formulated his theory of evolution, he said that these mutations would confer adaptability, but not necessarily superiority to a given species. Wouldn't that suggest otherwise that there is intelligence for um, advancing uh, biology? Well, I think, I think people can believe that evolution uh, somewhat accidentally produced humans, even. In some ways, that's a little surprising that we could be here and that we could have free will and so on. One might argue that there's something in addition to simple, ra simply random evolution, uh, but that's that's debatable, and uh, I would not rule out completely random evolution that happened to happen to produce us. Now, it might not have produced us, <laughs> but it happened to maybe, uh, and uh, it certainly has been remarkable what has evolved over time. So this is about the SETI project. What is the value for looking for extraterrestrial intelligence? How does this contribute to our understanding of the universe? Well, I think it would be fascinating if we find any extraterrestrial intelligence. It would be interesting if we don't find it, if we look hard and don't find it. I think many people would believe that, well, since we are randomly produced uh, by evolution, that probably there are other planets uh, that uh, where there's life. And certainly there are other, many other stars, billions and billions of other stars and billions and billions of other planets. Not all planets uh, can, can, produce, can uh, produce life. For example, Venus is too hot and uh, Mars is a bit too cold and so on. And the Earth happens to be just right. Well, uh, undoubtedly some other planets that happen to be pretty close to right. And would there be life on it? If we find life there, it would be fascinating, particularly if the life is like us or if it's different from us. Maybe they'll know a lot more than we do and can tell us things. Now, uh, I think searching for life is uh, very appropriate and fascinating. If we find it, it'll be terribly interesting. If we look and look and don't find it, then that may tell us something, too, that we're even more special than we think. Uh, what are you excited about these days? What would you advise a budding scientist to study in? Well, I think, uh, I think a scientist or anybody should do the things they find most interesting. If you, find some, if you see something that you think is both important and you find interesting, that's what you like to do best and contribute most to. Do the things you find interesting, you'll have fun at it, and I've always had fun with science. Uh, so, uh, but there are a lot of sciences, sciences which are budding now. For example, cosmology is fascinating. Astronomy and cosmology, basic physics, there's lots of puzzles there. And uh, biology, biology is uh, becoming much more fundamental now and is growing fast and terribly interesting. So there are many, many things. And finally, I, I guess I had a question about maybe your views on science policy. 
What is the role of the government in promoting science? While a lot of our initial developments were spurred by intellectual curiosity, and for example, quantum mechanics, and um, uh, we've certainly seen a lot of uh, technological benefits from that. Um, there are many in the government who now propose that science should have a uh, economic impetus, it should have economic benefits. How do you have a, a science policy such that we promote uh, intellectual curiosity? Well, that's an interesting and important problem. First place to produce new science, we need primarily curiosity and exploration. And we don't know what we'll find. The new discoveries are new, and we never know what they are. Now, on the other hand, these new discoveries have been tremendously important to us economically. In fact, there's a, an economist at MIT who made a study of the payoff of investment in science by the government. And he showed it paid off enormously. The problem is it doesn't pay off immediately, and you can't predict what it's going to do. So some science pays off very, very well, some doesn't. In terms of economy, it may pay off intellectually. Uh, so a politician, he would like to support something he sees going to pay off within his term of office, say, within a few years. But new science, it takes maybe several decades before it pays off. Nevertheless, it's an enormously important investment, very important for our government to support science so that we can have this development. And overall, if you look over the period of history, the support of science has paid off enormously. I guess one recent example is the issue with uh, global climate change. I think many atmospheric scientists have known for at least a couple of decades what the impact of human activities has been on our planet. At the same time, government officials have not been too keen on uh, suggestions to, to mitigate these effects. Um, are you optimistic that the U.S. will wake up and uh, do the right thing? Uh, yes, I'm fairly optimistic. In fact, I think our government is beginning to wake up to this and recognize it. And uh, But it requires a good scientific study, continued scientific study, to convince our government officials that, yes, we must do something about it. Professor Towns, uh, it's been a real inspiration. Thank you so much for your time. Quite welcome. Glad to be with you. And we were just talking to Professor Charles Towns, Nobel laureate in physics and last year's winner of the Templeton Prize. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM KALX. In a few moments, we'll find out what the valence shell is, so stay right there.
dude, it's like totally tubular out there because I'm riding the waves of electrons, man. Yeah, on the valence shell, dude. Whoa! But what's on the valence shell, man? Dude, those are like parts of the electron that are involved in bonding. And it's so cool because I jump from atom to atom. Whoa. Forest here with this week's question of the week. Down here in the south, we got these mosquito fish thriving in the ponds. But what do they do? And where do they come from? Well, if you know or think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your puddle might not be so lonely. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs>